From the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science, this is Cookies, a podcast about technology, privacy, and security. I'm Aaron Nathans. On this podcast, we'll discuss how technology has transformed our lives, from the way we connect with each other, to the way we shop, work, and consume entertainment. And we'll discuss some of the hidden trade-offs we make as we take advantage of these new tools. Cookies, as you know, can be a tasty snack but they can also be something that takes your data. On today's episode, we'll talk with Annette Zimmerman. She makes the provocative argument that there are times it might be better to take cutting edge artificial intelligence tools and leave them unused. Annette is a political philosopher working on the ethics of artificial intelligence and machine learning. She's a technology and human rights fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University and an assistant professor in philosophy at the University of York in the United Kingdom. Annette was previously a postdoc at Princeton's Center for Information Technology Policy, as well as Princeton's University Center for Human Values. Annette, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Aaron. All right. So first, in a recent article, you said data is not just a social mirror. It's a magnifying glass. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's really common uh, for people to say something like, well, garbage in, garbage out. So our technological models are only as good as the data that we put in them. And that much is true. In fact, we might see this kind of phenomenon as actually an indicator of good design in a lot of ways. So one key design goal is to make sure that our technological models give us a faithful reflection of social reality. So computer scientists, of course, call that calibration. And so when we have well-calibrated models, what we see is they'll reflect social reality pretty well, including all of the social disparities that we have in society. So that's a problem for us because it's not obvious how exactly we should intervene in order to fix that. One phenomenon in this context that I think is particularly important uh, is this human phenomenon of automation bias. So we know empirically that humans are really much less likely to question a decision-making output, uh, given outcome, uh, that results from a process that we view as quantifiable and, you know, ostensibly neutral and objective and data-driven. We're just much less likely to intervene critically in that kind of decision-making process and question, um, you know, whatever assumptions might have underpinned that process. That is dangerous because it might prevent us from intervening where normally we would be intervening, right? So contrast uh, an algorithmic decision-making process to a human decision-making process on some type of issue. Uh, Let's say, you know, we're predicting something like uh, criminal recidivism risk. Uh, Now, obviously, human decision makers are highly biased. So that's a major problem. That's why we move towards automation in this area in the first place. Uh, But then, of course, uh, it's not strictly true that automated decision making in the domain of criminal justice is completely bias free. Very often, we find highly disparate distributions of error rates across different sociodemographic groups in that area. Now, the compounding problem here is that Once we have that tool that works imperfectly, we have this additional issue that humans interacting with that technological model and making decisions based on those algorithmic outputs are much less likely to ask this question of, 
well, what was the purpose of automating this in the first place? And what do we not know when we are confronted with this output, right? So what can we do with technology and what can't we do? Now, this can lead to a process of amplifying social disparities, right? If we leave technology unchecked, then it's much more likely that they will scale up existing disparities further and further in a way that is unfettered by normal processes of human deliberation and critique. Now, in addition to magnifying those social inequalities, technology can also simultaneously obfuscate them. So it's quite a tricky, pernicious problem. So on the one hand, it's possible that over time, if we leave technology unchecked and don't intervene to make it more accurate and more fair, uh, social disparities can turn into much larger cleavages. But also, the mere use of an algorithmic tool might endow these decision-making processes with a false sense of certainty or accuracy. And so it can thereby obfuscate the degree to which those systems actually spin out from our control. So there is a kind of double problem space here uh, that isn't quite captured by this very neat thesis that data just reflects social reality. It's actually a much bigger problem than that. So why do people tend to defer to data? Um, why do why do we get the impression that we're taking our biases out of the equation, that the numbers speak for themselves? Well, I think it's natural uh, to think that as soon as we work with more fine-grained information, uh, we're going to get better quality decision outcomes, right? So very often, uh, the move to automate a given decision task is driven by this underlying assumption that we're just working with really imperfect information. And obviously, our own human reasoning processes can be flawed, they can be irrational, they can be biased in multiple ways. And so if that's true, the assumption is, well, one good way of solving this problem is just getting more data and getting better decision-making processes uh, in the mix. Now, the trade-off we're making here is, uh, on the one hand, we're using much more fine-grained data and we're, we can compute particular problems at an unprecedented scale, uh, but we're also reducing our amount for leeway uh, in decision-making, right? So given this uh, problem that we just talked about, this problem of automation bias, uh, it becomes harder and harder for us to recognize that as human decision-makers, we can't adopt this kind of attitude of helplessness, right? Like we can't just outsource all of the decision-making process to technology. We have to keep thinking about what our role is when we interact with technological models. So one good thing uh, that I think we ought to do as human decision-makers routinely whenever we interact with technology is to intervene early and often. What that means is that uh, we start thinking about the stakes of using automation uh, in a given domain uh, as soon as we start the design process, right? So we shouldn't view ethical reasoning or political reasoning uh, as a kind of final checkbox uh, towards the end of the design process. No, that needs to start much, much earlier. So we need to ask ourselves these really complex questions about, well, what's the purpose? What's the goal of automation in this domain? So do we really need to predict this particular thing? Do we you know, maybe want to predict some other thing? Um, and so answering these kinds of questions will really inform uh, the shape that a design process can take. In addition to that, we also have to recognize the importance of changing our minds down the line, 
So it might very well be true that initially it seems like one particular decision problem really lends itself to automation. Uh, so there's a really strong presumption in favor of optimization and innovation in that area. And that's a really good thing. But we shouldn't get trapped in a path dependency here. right? So we should remain open to the idea that at some point it turns out that actually down the line, we might choose to not deploy that tool anymore uh, and instead develop a different tool instead right? in light of new empirical information that we learn when we see how the model interacts with the social world. So for instance, under conditions of severe social inequality, using a particular tool that makes certain social processes run more smoothly might actually undermine justice. So just to give you a concrete example here, think about any sort of AI-driven application in law enforcement and criminal justice. So if we're operating under social conditions that are really systemically unjust, right, like in a way where it's, it's really unclear if technology alone can fix those social problems, it's plausible in my view to think that uh, very often technology alone is insufficient for addressing these problems. We also need much larger scale political and institutional transformations. Um, but if we're operating under this reasonably unjust status quo, then using a tool that just accelerates what we currently have, that just scales up those uh, disparities, uh, will actually not be the best thing we can do here, right? So whenever we automate, we have to be cautious that we're asking the right kinds of questions about the purpose of scaling up a given social practice or social phenomenon. You know, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard, if history is any guide, is there a downside when statistical models use past performance as a guide for future decision making? And you know, what's a good example of using old numbers to perpetuate old problems? I think there have been a lot of uh, good recent examples in many different domains of, of this kind of phenomenon. So think, for instance, uh, of this recent scandal um, in relation to Amazon's algorithmic hiring process. So Amazon had this tool that ranked different applicants for a given position. And this tool placed a really high premium on hiring for a company fit, right? So the idea was, well, our teams currently work really well. We want to attract applicants that, you know, fit in that team and kind of slot right in. Uh, But what the tool did was it systematically downgraded female applicants because women were really underrepresented in that current team. And so, of course, this is an instance of bad design rather than explicit malice. Uh, But the effect was nevertheless uh, really severely unjust, right? Because um, if you had something like a woman's soccer team captain on your CV, you were automatically, you know, downgraded by that algorithm just because there was an underrepresentation of, um, you know, uh, female employees in that team. Uh, So here learning from past data Uh, was done badly, right? That doesn't necessarily show that learning from past data is always objectionable, but it can be if we don't think carefully about just exactly how we want to measure a variable like hiring for company fit, right? So we might have to adopt a different view on what a good applicant actually looks like. Uh, And so measuring and operationalizing that concept isn't straightforward, right? So we have to ask these deeper questions here before we just, you know, base our decisions on what we've done in the past. 
Another really good example um, arises in various healthcare applications of AI. Uh, so there have been some recent studies that show that uh, very often algorithmic decision making uh, used in diagnostic contexts uh, disadvantages uh, black patients. Uh, and the reason was that uh, fairly blunt and reductive algorithmic tools were being used for uh, these diagnostic purposes. And in particular, those tools really focused on past data, on the cost of various healthcare interventions. And of course, uh, what skews this data, this past data pattern, was that historically, Black patients have received less care for really serious conditions, right? Like less costly care uh, for, you know, many different kind of systemic uh, reasons. And so inferring uh, future treatments, future medical treatments based on these skewed data sets from the past can just perpetuate these racial disparities that we see in the healthcare sector. So that's another good example that really shows that we need to think very carefully about just what kind of past data we would like to base our future decisions on. Very often, the concepts that underpin algorithmic designs are inherently contested, right? They're not straightforward concepts. You know, the same is true uh, in these criminal justice applications that I mentioned to you before. Uh, so whenever we're working with a system that um, tries to classify uh, people in categories like high risk or low risk, uh, we have to ask this question, well, is it obvious how we should measure riskiness uh, on an individual basis? As it turns out, that's a really politically and ethically contested category, right? Like, which variables should we use? Uh, should we just base this on, you know, prior arrest data? Uh, well, if we do, we're going to run into this problem that arrest records don't neatly map onto crime rates, right? Um, so especially when we have uh, biased policing practices, uh, you know, we'll see that a lot of people get arrested who actually aren't guilty of a crime. But conversely, um, you know, we might not arrest some people who actually are criminals. And so often uh, we, we're working with really imperfect measurements here for what we're actually trying to predict and classify. You write in an upcoming paper about deciding who deserves the benefit of the doubt when it comes to measuring a student's potential using artificial intelligence. What did you mean by that? Yeah, in this paper, I'm commenting on a recent political controversy in the UK. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the UK government decided to just cancel all final uh, high school exams uh, and instead uh, replace them with this uh, algorithmic prediction tool. Now, this is a really important issue because in the UK, uh, final high school grades really um, have a huge impact on people's lives. So they determine things like university admissions. Um, and there was an uproar initially because people were really concerned that uh, using an algorithmic tool of this kind might actually disadvantage students who go to schools uh, that have been performing more poorly in comparison to other types of schools. Now, it's relevant uh, background knowledge in this context that the UK school and education system is really stratified around uh, socio-demographic variables like race and class. So that was already um, at the forefront of people's minds when this controversy arose. And lo and behold, when the algorithm was implemented, it actually did end up downgrading people um, especially students of color and working class students. 
um, about 40% uh, of students' grades were downgraded. Uh, and not only just from an A to a B, uh, it was more like, you know, you might go from an A to a fail. Uh, so there were really significant uh, disparities uh, in terms of these outcomes. And so as it transpired, one reason why this algorithmic tool worked so badly uh, was because uh, it didn't really include uh, a good way of measuring uncertainty. So for instance, uh, it made, made these historical uh, predictions uh, for schools that were rapidly improving over time. So there are a number of schools in the UK who performed really badly uh, initially, but then, you know, uh, scaled up and, um, you know, really enhanced the quality of education. Uh, and in those schools, the data was really mixed, right? So up until, you know, five, four, three years ago, uh, results were really bad. Uh, but then students um, who deserved really good final grades um, and who actually would have gotten those grades if they had sat exams didn't receive them. So many of those kinds of students failed. And so the reason here was that uh, the tool didn't have a good way of putting into context that that school had improved rapidly over time. Uh, now, being able to factor in uh, something like uh, our confidence, our degree of confidence uh, in a particular result, given recent historical changes, that would have been the thing that made that algorithm better. But the algorithm was fairly crude. And so it wasn't able to put these complex social phenomena into a critical context. And of course, again, because uh, of these empirical conditions like automation bias, not many other people were questioning this tool either. So the algorithm itself can solve this problem and human decision makers opted out of questioning the, the tool. Now, this combination of bad factors led to really, really unjust outcomes to the, to the point where teenagers were protesting in the streets. To my knowledge, that's uh, the first in-person protest against algorithmic injustice. So I thought that was a really interesting phenomenon. I think we're going to see much more of that uh, going forward. Uh, and so what these students said was, well, you know, I feel like I've been slotted into the category of people who just never had a shot. Right? I'm not being given the chance to prove myself uh, either in an exam context or uh, while being assessed algorithmically. Uh, I'm just already slotted into this category of somebody who can't win. And so that's what made that tool really unjust. People felt like they weren't being given the opportunity to really excel because they were from schools that had historically performed poorly. So it, it's broader than that, though. I mean, it, it, AI sometimes just keeps people from having the benefit of the doubt all across our society, right? Absolutely. So exactly this kind of phenomenon occurs in many other domains. And so it's an interesting phenomenon, I think, because a lot of people might look at AI and kind of think of AI as this fundamentally uncertain or inscrutable, black boxy type of thing, right? So... Uh, now, of course, it's true that machine learning requires some degree of opacity. In fact, some of our most sophisticated machine learning tools um, work especially well because they allow for some degree of opacity. Uh, but that doesn't mean that algorithmic systems don't all also reduce uncertainty in a lot of ways. Right? As soon as we measure and quantify something, 
we're already making choices about, well, what is worth measuring and how confident should we be about the predictions that we uh, make based on those measurements. And so that's the, that's the area where things can get very tricky, right? On the one hand, we think, well, numbers are neutral. But on the other hand, I think we have to realize that technology never operates in a moral and political vacuum, right? It's not like we can do technological design in a completely value-neutral, value-free space. We're already making at least implicit judgment calls about what matters and how best to measure what matters. Uh, and so that, that's exactly where these problems come in. And we can find it in AI applications and education, but also, you know, criminal justice, hiring, credit scoring, all of these other kinds of decision uh, problems where we use automation to make our lives easier. So there's some really weird AI out there. And you've written about this. What are some examples? And, and what do you think that tells us about how people are choosing to use technology? Right. I think uh, recently there have been a number of AI applications that seem to work relatively well. So they do kind of well with respect to accuracy. Um, but their purpose itself is badly defined, right? So for instance, consider um, this recent wave of beauty assessment tools. So there's a number mm -hmm. of facial recognition systems. Uh, that give users a beauty score. And so basically the way in which those tools work is they just measure, you know, certain um, distances between various facial features. Um, and then they tell you how symmetrical your face is. My question when I look at these tools is always, why do we need that, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the companies pitching these kinds of tools, um, you know, have these really amazing websites where they say something like, you know, measuring beauty is really hard, but we've developed this way of doing it. Uh, but again, that doesn't really answer the question of why we need an automated way of determining facial symmetry uh, and how that moves us further as a society. So on the one hand, it reinforces this assumption that symmetrical faces are just inherently more desirable, uh, that there is some objective standard of beauty, which you know, I think we have strong ethical and political reasons to question. Uh, but then also, uh, and even more perniciously, it transpired that those tools again exhibited a lot of uh, racial bias. Uh, so one of these tools, you know, just completely eliminated dark-skinned faces from uh, its ranking of, you know, the most beautiful people it had assessed. Uh, and, you know, in a way that's, that's predictable because we've seen similar racial bias problems in many other uh, applications of AI. Often the problem is, well, uh, developers didn't really think carefully about, you know, what the standards uh, that they want to impose on their systems uh, should be, which data sets are being used and so on. Um, but just because that problem is predictable doesn't mean we should, you know, adopt this attitude of, you know, leaning back and just kind of saying, oh, all AI kind of scales up these disparities. No, we should question the purpose of using that tool in the first place. It's also mm -hmm. worth noting in this context, actually, that even if one type of AI tool just seems weird in the sense that its purpose isn't super clear, um, mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily make it laughable or kind of innocent. Uh, so we might look at this beauty assessment tool and kind of think, well, you know, that's kind of an unnecessary and potentially misguided tool, but we can opt out of using it 
you know, nobody's forcing you to get a beauty score from this AI tool. But the same companies that develop these kinds of technologies often also use their expertise in this domain of facial recognition for much more nefarious purposes. So recently, for instance, it was revealed that uh, one of these beauty scoring tools called Face++, which was developed by a Chinese company called Megvi, um, that kind of tool enabled Megvi to then collaborate with Huawei to test a tool called Uyghur Alarm. Now, of course, the purpose of this tool was to, uh, you know, use facial recognition to identify and profile and potentially arrest uh, members of uh, the Uyghur minority in China. And so we can quickly see that a weird AI can turn into a very bad, like explicitly bad, explicitly discriminatory AI application very quickly because the same kind of inference method can be used for many different kinds of purposes. Uh, so we shouldn't look at weird AI with complacency. I think we should always question, you know, what's the purpose of this tool and how could that purpose be redefined into something that is even more dangerous? Um, so it's important to, to kind of ask these deeper questions about these kinds of applications, I think. Now, in addition, maybe just another example that I found interesting, this came out a few months ago. Amazon has a new health band uh, called Halo. And this is a so-called holistic health uh, tool that aims to assess not only your physical health, but also your you know, mental and emotional well-being. Uh, what you do when you get it is uh, you do a near-naked body scan uh, with it in order to assess your BMI. Of course, all of that data gets sent to Amazon straight away. Uh, I, I had immediate worries about, the, about that aspect. Of course, not only uh, do we know that uh, body mass index is a really bad measurement of physical health, uh, but I was also very concerned about the privacy implications of sending uh, a lot of this kind of data to a company like Amazon. Uh, but things didn't stop there. So this tool, as I mentioned, uh, was aimed to be more holistic, which in my view is a euphemism for just trying to gather even much more data. Uh, so one thing that the tool does is it listens to you all day and it evaluates the tone of your voice. Uh, now, emotion recognition um, is notoriously controversial in the fair machine learning community for good reason. Uh, people are skeptical of this idea that we can really accurately measure emotions uh, based on fairly blunt uh, metrics. Now, people who tested this tool found that uh, it worked really differently for different people. Uh, so a team of journalists uh, recently, a male female, and a female journalist, uh, you know, uh, wore it for a day. Uh, for the male journalist, it came out with things like, oh, you sound very assertive today. Uh, you know, you seem to be doing great. Uh, unsurprisingly, the female journalist uh, got very different feedback. It was something like, oh, you sound a little opinionated there. Uh, so it was the eye-powered equivalent of, you know, being told to smile more. Uh, and so we might question whether that's actually conducive to, uh, you know, a health assessment, uh, holistic or not. Uh, and so I think the purpose of this kind of tool just clearly hasn't been thought through. It's not only that it's invasive, even though, of course, that's a major, major problem here. Uh, it's also just unclear why we need this kind of invasive data collection um, and if the benefits of doing that are really that clear. So asking this deeper question again, what's, what's the purpose of using AI in this domain? I think it's really, really crucial.
How much is facial recognition being used in policing and is it regulated? Right. That's another example of a potentially weird and bad uh, application of AI, in my view. Uh, recently, a team of Stanford researchers developed this really controversial tool uh, that aimed to predict um, you know, personal characteristics, behaviors, and preferences, again, purely from blunt facial uh, kind of biometric data. So uh, things like measuring the distance between your eyes. Um, now, the tool didn't only predict things like, you know, your propensity for violent criminality based on that eye distance and other kind of facial features. Uh, it also predicted things like, you know, are you likely to be gay? Uh, and I found that very puzzling. Again, uh, I, I think the natural question, the first kind of question we should ask is, why do we need AI to determine whether people are gay based on the way in which their face looks? And again, why do we need to make this inference about future criminality uh, based on the way you look, right? Again, it kind of buys into this idea that your face is your destiny, which is a really flawed historical idea. So the use of this kind of tool, in my mind, really echoes uh, really flawed inferential methods, uh, for instance, methods used by eugenicists or phrenologists. And so, um, again, uh, in the past, we see these instances of uh, pseudo-researchers uh, using fairly blunt assessments of uh, people's faces and skulls and making really far-reaching predictions about their character, their behaviors, uh, the likelihood that they'll do certain things. And so even if the new kinds of tools that we have something like the Stanford tool, which according to the researchers who developed it, worked really accurately. So even if those kinds of tools now work well, I think we can't really dismiss this worry about the historical baggage that is associated with these tools. Philosophers call this kind of problem um, expressive harm. So the mere use of a particular type of method that echoes a history of racist pseudoscience could be objectionable, even if the researcher's data suggests that the tool was actually able to predict who's gay or, you know, it was able to predict who's a criminal. Um, the, the kind of communicative uh, downside of using this tool, of choosing to use automation for this purpose, uh, entrenches this flawed idea that, you know, it's true that some people just look gay or look like they're criminals. And that's bad, even if uh, we can get the tool up to a standard that, you know, maybe outperforms humans making similar predictions. Now, you also asked about uh, whether facial recognition technology and policing is regulated. Uh, it's not very much regulated, uh, but uh, I think more regulation in this area is coming. Uh, we've seen some instances of uh, members of the public really contesting the use of facial recognition tools in law enforcement and immigration enforcement. So multiple American cities, uh, for example, like San Francisco or Somerville, uh, have locally decided to ban the use of these tools for policing purposes. Uh, so San Francisco, for instance, passed the Stop Secret Surveillance uh, Ordinance. Um, and the, the explicit reason cited in that ordinance for banning this kind of tool was again the racially disparate impact of that tool. So the idea here was, well, under current social conditions, we, we just can't use the, this tool in a way that doesn't scale up 
systemic inequality. So then our only option in this instance is to ban it until we are operating under changed empirical conditions. And the interesting thing here is that not only did uh, you know, activists and policymakers come to this conclusion, major tech corporations also came to the same conclusion. So last summer, multiple companies like Amazon and IBM all put out these public statements that they were voluntarily imposing these moratoria on themselves. So they were saying, we will not deploy this technology in this domain anymore until this domain of law enforcement is properly regulated. So even they were relatively nervous about you know, empirical findings that showed that these tools failed really differently for white people than for black people and for men uh, in comparison to women. So given that we know that um, when those tools go wrong, they go wrong in drastically worse ways for marginalized communities, uh, the kind of result of that was that a lot of players in the tech industry and beyond uh, responded by becoming much more friendly to this idea of at least temporary non-deployment. Now, of course, I think the question here is, well, are we happy with just local bans or um, you know, do we want kind of industry-wide regulation across the board? I think the latter option would be much preferable. Right? So it would be a bad state of affairs to have really patchy regulation in a high stakes domain like law enforcement and criminal justice. Uh, because if, if you're a citizen living in a democratic society, you want your rights to be secure in exactly the same way in every location. And so having really disparate policymaking on this issue would undermine a really fundamental democratic value, namely the equal enforcement of people's rights no matter where they are. You're listening to Cookies, a podcast about technology, security, and privacy. We're speaking with Annette Zimmerman, a technology and human rights fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University and an assistant professor in philosophy at the University of York. It's the 100th anniversary of Princeton School of Engineering and Applied Science. To celebrate, we're providing 100 facts about our past, our present, and our future, including some quiz questions to test your knowledge about the people, places, and discoveries who have made us who we are. Join the conversation by following us on Instagram at ePrinceton. That's the letter E, Princeton. But for now, back to our conversation with Annette Zimmerman. What is an example of a machine learning system that should not be deployed in the first place? Yeah, that's a really controversial question, uh, I think, because a lot of people, particularly in the tech industry, uh, I think for good reason, think that whenever we should uh, or whenever we can optimize something and build something that might be useful, we should, right? We should try it. Um, and so the idea of simply not building something that we could, in fact, build or not optimizing something that we've already built, uh, that's just like giving up to a lot of people, right? Um, and it's maybe counterintuitive to say something like, don't build this tool or don't deploy this tool, uh, because it sounds kind of like you're trying to actively just not make things better, right? Mm. And so that, that's what's counterintuitive about it. Now, uh, we can see this controversy play out uh, exactly 
with the earlier example that we've talked about, namely facial recognition and policing. So here's an interesting uh, process that happened after local bans were implemented in multiple cities uh, and certain companies self-imposed these voluntary uh, voluntary uh, deployment moratoria. Not everyone agreed that non-deployment was the best option here. So some companies said, no, listen, like optimization would benefit everyone in society, right? So even if we currently have disparate distributions of error rates uh, in these tools across different socio-demographic groups, if we can just make these tools better, then that will move us closer to justice. And so in particular, uh, Google had uh, an analysis of the problem space here, which was basically that the reason why we had these disparate distributions of error rates uh, was because the data was just underrepresentative uh, of society at large. So their problem analysis was, well, we need to make sure that our database uh, has enough dark-skinned faces in it. Now, they, the way they went about solving this problem was deeply objectionable in my mind. What they did um, was they employed a subcontractor, and that subcontractor decided to uh, explicitly target and approach uh, Black and homeless people in American cities like LA and Atlanta. Uh, and in order to incentivize them to provide this biometric data for optimization purposes, uh, they offered these people a $5 gift card, right? Like a, a voucher. And the conversation that unfolded in these exchanges as, uh, you know, employees of that subcontractor later on reported to the media was something like, hey, here's a selfie game. Why don't you play this game for us? And, you know, um, we'll just give you this voucher. At no point was it mentioned that really fine-grained biometric data was being recorded from uh, these people. Uh, another variation was uh, something like, you know, just uh, complete the survey, uh, you know, um, here's a phone, you just kind of tick some boxes and do it really fast, right? Like, don't think about it too much, just do it really intuitively. So employees of the subcontractor were really uh, explicitly instructed to rush people through the process. And when people said something like, oh, is this recording my face right now? Like, it looks like it's recording. They were told to say something like, oh, don't worry about that. No, it's not. And so that was really morally and politically objectionable uh, from my perspective for multiple reasons. The first reason is that it's incredibly deceptive, right? So it's, it's gathering a lot of invasive uh, data from people by deceiving them into providing this information that they might otherwise not necessarily provide. And mind you, for a relatively small financial uh, incentive. So it looks like a kind of clear-cut case of uh, exploitation. Now, of course, some exploitative arrangements can be mutually beneficial. Uh, political philosophers have analyzed those types of scenarios uh, extensively. So you might look at this kind of case and say, well, you know, Google um, and the subcontractor uh, stand to gain massively financially from optimizing facial recognition technology by using this data. Um, and they're paying people a mere $5 for it. Looks like they're taking an unfair advantage of them. But exactly those populations that are being exploited might ultimately benefit from these more accurate tools. 
Now, I think that's a bad analysis uh, because it doesn't really show that exploitation in this context isn't objectionable. Uh, I think it's still wrongful to deceive people in this way and to obtain this data in this in this very hidden uh, and sneaky way. Now, in addition, I think the problem is that this optimization effort, uh, which was posited as a real alternative to just not deploying these tools, uh, that optimization effort itself undermined justice. It undermined justice because uh, it exploited exactly the kinds of marginalized communities that were previously already burdened by badly functioning tools uh, deployed in this area. So it was almost like this optimization effort was adding insult to injury. Uh, and I think that compounds the initial wrongness of having a really racially biased facial recognition tool used in policing. Now, this kind of case, in my mind, really shows that unless we find a better way to optimize these tools, and unless we can implement larger scale social and political changes that make policing and criminal justice better and more equitable, then we should indeed not deploy these tools, right? We should temporarily say, no, we're not there yet. We actually can't use technology in quite this way uh, under current empirical conditions. So we need to make some other, maybe unrelated to AI type changes before we can automate in quite this way. Of course, this is subject to change. Right? So if we're successful in uh, making society more just, uh, then it's very possible that we, we can use automation uh, in multiple ways, in multiple domains. But I think it's important to recognize that in cases that have broadly the structure of the case that I just explained, we shouldn't shy away from something like non-deployment, right? So even if there is a strong initial presumption of optimization, uh, we should make some exceptions to that when we see that the results are just going to entrench injustice even further. How do we make sure that as we build AI that we're doing it for the right reasons and using it in ways to build a more just society? Right. I think the first thing we need to do uh, is to really start valuing uh, uncertainty in our collective decision making about powerful technology. So we've talked before about how uh, often the appeal of AI seems to be that it kind of helpfully reduces uncertainty for us. It kind of condenses uh, our decision making uh, to issues that we can easily quantify and measure. And there, there's something reassuring about that. But on the other hand, I think it's always important to remember what we don't know uh, when we make quantified decisions, right? So welcoming this idea that some things might not be easily quantifiable. Sometimes we might need to argue and deliberate as you know, flawed human decision makers that we are about how best to measure something, how best to reach a decision in a given context. And so allowing for this productive type of uncertainty and skepticism and doubt, uh, that I think will really uh, positively contribute to collective conversations about what AI should and shouldn't do. Now, in order to do that well, I think those conversations shouldn't be confined to the tech industry and to academia. I would welcome a development where uh, there are more broader kind of social uh, deliberations on this issue. What we're currently seeing is uh, something that we might call AI exceptionalism, 
this idea that AI is really unique and really powerful and really inscrutable and just really complex so that ordinary citizens can't possibly dream of understanding it. Now, that's true in the sense that ordinary citizens might not be tech developers, right? They might not be able to actually design these tools. But we can make value-based decisions about the purpose of using automation in various areas, much like we make value-based decisions about you know, uh, really complex environmental policy decisions uh, or, you know, uh, other science and technology uh, policy decisions, medical policy decisions. And so we should recognize that we as a democratic constituency are actually already in the habit of deliberating about really complicated things. Uh, often that is imperfect, which is why we consult experts. Um, but it's not like we should simply opt out of scrutinizing the ethical and political implications of using AI uh, completely, right? So very often we can say something about, you know, uh, does this tool really promote justice in this area or should we rather just put ourselves through a slower human decision process here just to make sure that we can keep things in check there? And so often those kinds of conversations, I think, are going to be insightful, right? So we shouldn't outsource this responsibility uh, responsibility to deliberate critically on AI just to corporations and experts. Now, at the same time, uh, I think we should also seriously consider how decision-making processes within the tech industry could be productively changed. So recently, a lot of uh, tech employees and uh, big corporations have voiced discontent with the ways in which decision-making structures work in their companies. So um, this idea that often lower-level uh, developer teams or individual developers don't feel like they can pump the brakes on a given decision to build and deploy a tool. So if you foresee problems as an individual tech employee, uh, do you really have meaningful opportunities to critically contest a kind of company-wide design process? And so allowing people within those corporate structures to exercise their critical judgment without fear of repercussions is really important, but also increasingly under threat. Recently, we've seen a number of high-profile firings of really important experts working in this area. I'm thinking in particular uh, of uh, Dr. Timnit Gebru being fired from Google. Uh, of course, Dr. Gebru was uh, the co-lead of the ethical AI team there. Uh, and so this kind of uh, example, I think, really highlights how important it is to think about how individual uh, employees and tech companies uh, can really exercise their voice and their, their kind of critical um, input when it comes to thinking about whether AI should be used for various purposes. So that's a good reminder of where things currently work not well and where there is significant room for improvement. Well, thank you. This has been fascinating. Uh, this is uh, a, lot, a lot of great food for thought. Th thank you. Annette. Thank you for the great conversation. We've been speaking with Annette Zimmerman, a technology and human rights fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University and an assistant professor in philosophy at the University of York. I want to thank Annette as well as our recording engineer, Dan Kearns. 
Cookies is a production of the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms. Show notes and an audio recording of this podcast are available at our website, engineering.princeton.edu. If you get a chance, please leave a review. It helps. Views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Princeton University. I'm Aaron Nathans, Digital Media Editor at Princeton Engineering. Watch your feed for another episode of Cookies soon. Peace.